You're watching Badass Lady Folk. I'm your host, Christine Stoddard. And this episode, my guest is Dr. Notice the doctor, Marlene S. Barr. Hi, Marlene. Hi, Christine. I'm really happy to be here talking to you. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you, too. And you have your books, a couple of them. You have a newspaper clipping. Uh, we do have folks who just listen to the show. They don't watch the show. So I want to describe a little bit of what is on the table. Could you hold up the first book? Okay. I wrote two short story collections mm -hmm. that are satires about Donald Trump. Yay! And I'm a science fiction scholar. Yes. And I've written... Renowned. Okay. <laughs> Well-known science fiction scholar. I, I pioneered the feminist science fiction field. And I have written more science fiction about Trump than anybody else on the planet because I was so... I don't know what word to use. I was so mortified, sickened, and upset that I didn't know what to do. And what I can do is I can write biting satire. And what Mel Brooks did with Hitler in Springtime for Hitler, although Trump is not Hitler and I'm not Mel Brooks, <laughs> I wanted to do the best that I could and use satire to embarrass Trump. Because the way, as Brooks said, the way to deal with someone like that is ridicule, mm -hmm. to bring them down and to say that they're not that scary and not that dangerous. And, and Mel Brooks weaponized ridicule. And I weaponized feminist science fiction. And I put Trump into feminist science fiction scenarios. Mm. And anything that he could do, I could make it worse in terms of science fiction. Uh. Except, like, I started this um, after 2016. And if I did two books worth, I was mad as hell and I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> But now it's become so extreme that there's not going to be a third book because I think it's worse than science fiction. Oh, God. And there's nothing I could do anymore to, to parody it because it's just so insane that it's, it's, so, it's so out of control. Um, like he says he wants to be a dictator on the, on the first day, and I, I can't be like Charlie Chaplin doing the great dictator. It, it, it doesn't work anymore, and I'm too scared, and I'm too, I'm too sick. And so one book, the first one, was called When Trump Changed, the Feminist Science Fiction Justice League Quashes the Orange Outrage Pussy Grabber. Yeah, I am going to hold it up. Uh, reaching over for those who are watching so they can see this cover. And for those who are listening, why don't we describe what's on this? Because that's a pretty fantastic illustration. What it is, is a person uh, is a blonde woman in a superhero suit with a pussy hat, <laughs> holding up a picture of Trump in his tennis togs, taking a pink cat by the throat 
grabbing the pussy. <laughs> and the reason that pussy grabber stuck out to me so much was I was so mortified that yeah. someone who is a president would say the word pussy grabber. I mean, I could not imagine saying pussy grabber in a classroom before him. Right. I, 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 I mean, I have a, again, I'm a science fiction scholar. I have a great big imagination, but no way would I say pussy grabber in class or anywhere. Yeah. And that the president would say that he runs around grabbing pussies? This is ridiculous. It, it, it certainly is. <laughs> and I wish it were all past tense, but, but it goes not. on. It goes on, <laughs> right. Um, the second book is called This Former President, Science Fiction as Retrospective Retro Rocket Jettisons Trumpism. <laughs> yeah, let me hold this up for... Or video watchers. I write titles like this in my academic writing. Nobody writes like me. <laughs> <laughs> and on the cover, we have a screaming Trump. It looks sort of uh, like 60s sci-fi style, right? He has a, his, his little round mouth is open. His little teeth are showing. <laughs> and above his head, there's a, there's a science, there's a, there's a flying saucer with retro rockets coming out of the bottom <laughs> and hitting his head. I yeah. don't know how to draw, but I made up both covers, so I'm really proud of that. Oh, wow. I told the artists what to do. Yeah. Well, good imagination. You <laughs> clearly have it. Yes. Okay. Why so don't you read? Like me to read yeah. a story? Okay. Yeah. To hear it in your voice, the author's voice. My voice. Okay. This is a story called... Disney's animatronic Trump makes America normal again. <laughs> and as I read this, I hope that since we're having New Year's, next year America is still normal and it's not something else and I can't <laughs> even think about it. <laughs> Abigail Disney, the granddaughter of Walt's brother Roy, made a video in response to the Republicans' punitive tax bill. Channeling her inner Bernie Sanders and acting as a precursor to Mary L. Trump's stance as a PhD-possessing famous family member who speaks her liberal mind, Abigail faced the camera dead on and explained that the bill benefited rich people like her to the detriment of the poor. This privileged woman responded to Trump with contempt. She was probably relieved that the animatronic Trump exhibited within Disney's World's Hall of Presidents initially did not speak. When Robot Trump was eventually given the real Trump's recorded voice, this is in part what it said. Above all, to be American is to be an optimist, to believe that we can always do better, that the best days of our great nation are still ahead of us. It's a privilege to serve as the President of the United States, <laughs> to stand here among so many great leaders of our past, and to work on behalf of the American people. Unquote the Disney language. <laughs> Trump does not speak that way. Yeah. He couldn't if his life depended on it. Even though these words were an improvement over Trump's usual sexist, racist, racist vitriol, Abigail wished out loud that an animatronic Hillary was standing in animatronic Trump's place. As soon as she did so, she noticed a flying light which took the form of a winged blonde female figure wearing a short, strapless green dress carrying a magic wand. <laughs> Tinkerbell exclaimed Abigail, why are you flying around my head? Walt Disney created me. Since you are his descendant, I want to make your wish come true. I wish that Trump was not the president. 
Walt and my grandfather, Roy, grew up poor. Trump is an affront to people like them. Your wish will be granted in a sneaky way. Fairies are obnoxious, after all. Give me a hint about how you will remove Trump from office. I will cast a spell on robot Trump. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> You're a Disney icon. I trust you. Tinkerbell materialized above animatronic Trump. Taking a cue from Frankenstein's monster, she imbued the non-human Trump with sentience. He haltingly moved his arms and looked up at Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell said, Your mission is surreptitiously to replace the real Trump and to have a positive impact upon American life. More simply stated, make America normal again. <laughs> the automaton shook his head affirmatively. There is one proviso, continued Tinkerbell. Even though you think and move at will, you can only say the words you were programmed to articulate. The old wand I am using does not have enough power to enable you to generate original language. Nevertheless, you will be able to get rid of Trump and replace him. Take these and use them to disguise yourself, concluded Tinkerbell as she handed robot Trump sunglasses and a pink pussy hat. <laughs> the automaton donned the accessories, walked out of Disney World, and headed north. Upon arrival in Palm Beach, he went to Mar-a-Lago and knocked on the door. After a staff member admitted him, he encountered Melania. I wasn't expecting you to arrive from Washington so early. You look tired, and you seem to be more stiff than usual. <laughs> Let's go to bed, she said. In the morning, Melania turned toward Robot Trump. That was the greatest sex ever, she explained in response to being penetrated by a mechanical penis. It's time to fly back to Washington. When she heard the word fly, Tinkerbell decided to improve upon Air Force One. As soon as Tinkerbell waved her wand, Melania and automaton Trump materialized on the White House lawn. Melania, long accustomed to acting like a robotic Stepford wife, kept silent about the unusual transport method she had experienced. Despite the recent great sex, Melania chose to go to her own bedroom. When robot Trump headed off to his bed, he came face to face with the real Trump. You look like me, but you can't be me, Trump, Trump stated. I'm one of a kind. I would much rather be watching Fox and grabbing pussies than to be here looking at you. You're a fake me, fake news. Tinkerbell appeared in the room accompanied by a compatriot, the croc who did in Captain Hook. When the croc opened his jaws and lunged at the real Trump, the president ran out of the White House. He was surprised to see the Disney castle newly relocated at to the Rose Garden. Great real estate, opined Trump as Melania joined him. Do you think that the Disney castle is more huge than Trump Tower, he asked her. I don't see a castle, she answered. Trump panicked when he realized that he was the only person who could see the castle. <gasps> da, 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 da. The tr croc chased him inside it. The door shut forever. <laughs> I'm always locking up Trump and things and getting rid of him. This is, this is wishful thinking. Yeah, good. As a European, Melania knew that the Disney castle was based upon the mad Bavarian King Ludwig's creation, Neuschwanstein. Suspecting that something insane had caused Trump instantaneously to disappear, she elected again to remain robotically mum and to enjoy having stupendous sex with robot Trump. <laughs> 
when the American when the Americans heard animatronic Trump incessantly repeating the polite words which Disney had programmed him to say that they thought that their president had finally decided to act like a, normal, like a normal human being. Abigail, a prize of Tinkerbell's switcheroo, was glad that she put her Disney inheritance to good use by actualizing the Magic Kingdom's supernatural premise. She bid Trump good riddance. This Disney family member who spoke truth to Trump's power vis-a-vis economics used woman-inspired magic successfully to wish Trump away. Americans with the benevolent animatronic Trump at the, ho- at the helm lived happily ever after. <laughs> the end. I love that phrase, woman-inspired magic. <laughs> well, okay. So Dr. Barr sat and wrote two books of, of stories of this ilk. And I think this is one of the tame ones, but I took every science fiction trope I, I know. Aliens, the Phantom Zone, Jack and the Beanstalk, I, fantasy, elves, everything I could think of after spending my whole life being a science fiction scholar to get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> and if he becomes a dictator, I decided I'm going to be dead and he's going to incinerate me or something. Oh, my God. I don't care. It's worth it. <laughs> I like people asking why did you, why did I write these books and how did I how did it come to pass that I did, and I am a science fiction scholar from Queens. Mm-hmm. I'm from Forest Hills, and he grew up in Jamaica Estates, and I grew up in a very big building. Well, I could see Jamaica Estates from my house. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Looking over Flushing Meadow, I could see Jamaica Estates, and he went to the Kew Forest School, which is on the. Fo- which is on the Kew Gardens Forest Hills border, and I right. knew people who went to the Kew Forest School. Hmm. And presidents are supposed to come from places like Dakota <laughs> or, or <laughs> Illinois, but they're not supposed to come from Queens. And I couldn't. And I'm a baby boomer, so I could be his younger sister, <laughs> younger, but still I could have been. His parents could have been could have been my parents, and I am appalled that someone. Like him, someone who could, who is the biggest threat to the world, can come from Queens Boulevard. Yeah, this does not make sense. Yeah. So I know that there are other people who come from Queens. I'm not the. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm certainly not the only one. And there's another science fiction scholar who comes from Queens, but he's 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 not a feminist. So I am the only feminist science fiction scholar in the world who comes from Queens. So who else in the world was going to write science fiction stories about Trump to try to do him in? I was elected. I was the only one. So here I am and I did it. And again, there's no third book. I can't stand it anymore. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. Prior to the interview, you had mentioned a newspaper article. And I do... Oh, is this your cue? You're like, no, let me read from the other book. No, I don't want to read from the other book. Okay, like okay. reading one story is enough. Okay. It's, too, it's like even though they even though modesty aside, I'm very funny. I think that <laughs> I think well, literary theorists are not funny. Yeah, that's true. But, but, I, but I am. This is this is my dissertation director told me to write my own voice. I listened to him. So this this is what comes out. Good for you. And, uh, um to be a scholar who writes fiction like this is like speaking in a double voice Mm. because literary theory, to put it mildly, nobody could understand this unless you have a PhD and you're an English professor. And I've been, I, I got my PhD in 19, 
All right. I'll, I got my PhD in 1980. So I have been writing literary theory for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember everything that I've written. So, <laughs> so, but you remember the fiction, right? Um, well, I wrote less. A lot of it. I wrote less fiction because I became, I did fiction later in life mm-hmm. because there are very few English professors who do write fiction. Yeah. Because you cannot write this theory that no one understands and also write humorous fiction that, that is for a general audience. And somehow my brain writes like that. But it's like being bilingual. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, am I going to speak in my theorist language or am I going to speak in my fiction language? And mm-hmm. and they're two separate things. But scholars write from quotations. Right. And in front of my stories, I have quotations of newspaper articles. Ah, that's what the clipping's for. That's right. That's right. And that's how I got the stories. And this drove the fiction the fiction editors crazy because they never edited scholars before, and they're not used to fiction writers writing from quotations hmm. because that's where I got my ideas from. And the language of fiction and the language of scholarship are, are so disparate that right. never the twain shall meet. And I have to say, some, I wrote also um, two novels about myself and being a feminist science fiction scholar, which is not normal, because <laughs> I was the first one, and I was the only woman among all of these men. So I had adventures, but that's another story. That's an, that's an, that's another story. Yeah, um, another interview. That's like that's like um, that's like another um, that's like another interview. And I guess um, when I was young, I liked older men, so that means most of them are dead. So I could say what I want by now. But I'm, that's for another interview. But what I'm getting to is that the language of theory is so removed from people that I was sitting on the internet and I was reading a feminist science fiction theory article, and I said, oh, this is a really good article, but I'm not really sure that I could understand it. <laughs> and No, you're laughing, but you don't know where I'm going. And I looked at the author, and I wrote the thing. No! Yes, I can't make this up. Yes. I probably wrote it in like 1985, and I looked at it three years ago. And I, you know, and, and I, you know, I probably was smarter in 1985. And I said, I get the gist of it, but I have to go. What is this here saying? <laughs> wow. And I wrote the thing, and I, I couldn't remember it. And um, there's this very famous um, theorist who's older than me, named Donna Haraway, and I think she's God, and I worship her. And I never met her before. And I went to a, re, um, a lecture that she was doing at the New School. And I was, like, so happy to see Donna Haraway. And it was, like, the day that I was doing my co-op apartment interview. And I had on, like, my wedding ring and my hair back. And, and I ran out of the interview. And I changed into my, my jeans. And I put to my hair out. And because I said, I can't meet Donna Haraway like this. I have to meet my real self. So I was in the auditorium at the new school, and I raised my hand, and I asked Donna Haraway a question. And in front of the whole auditorium, she said, that sounds like a question that Marlene Barr would ask. And I said, that's a very good, there's a very good reason for that. I am Marlene Barr. Wow. <laughs> and she said, oh, nice to meet you, Marlene. <laughs> so... I mean, it's a small field, and we all we all know each other. Yeah. So, so, so what is this okay, newspaper so, clipping? Okay, so I write from quotes. Right. And in any interview, I I 
um, every day they, it went fast, and they didn't know they were <laughs> like this one's going well, fast, yeah. But, but they didn't know that they were talking to a scholar, and mm-hmm. I never got to read my quote and explain it. So that's why I told you I wanted to read my quote and explain how. Okay. Write. And this is a quote, but I never wrote the story, and I'm never going to. Which newspaper is this? From the New York Times. Oh, okay. Like, All right. What else? Would no I big deal. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's an article from um, Nicholas Kristof, and it's called "President Governing from." Be- behind bars with a question mark and an exclamation point. And I would read a quote like this, and this is how I would generate a story. And this is what Christoph says, quote, and I put this at the end Mm. of the story, excuse me, at the beginning of the story, and this would drive the editor crazy because they wouldn't know how to place it, and they would think they were going to get arrested because I was quoting, and they didn't know you could quote. But anyway, here's the quote. Christoph says, I guess accommodations could be made so that prison officials didn't listen in on phone conversations between federal inmate number 62953-804 and Chinese and Russian leaders. Perhaps summits could be held in a larger cell, state banquets in the prison dining hall. And this was from June 15, 2023. And it holds more water now because of all the indictments of Trump. So I would be sitting on my sofa reading this, and I, and I would say, well, what would it be like to have a state banquet in a prison cell? And I would imagine, like, all the dignitaries and celebrities coming in with their gowns to the, to the Atlanta, to the county prison in Atlanta, where Fannie Willis was, which is supposed to be a hellhole. And I'd imagine how all these celebrities would feel traipsing in in their gowns and Trump would be sitting in his prison cell and and the waiters would come with this stupendous food and Trump would be eating it in his prison outfit. And what would that look like? And that's how I would write a story. (laughs) But I will never write this story. Because I would think of all the good food, and I think of Trump in prison, and I think of Trump being president while in prison, and I would just throw up, and I wouldn't be able to stand it. It would make me too sick. <laughs> so that's why that's why I stopped writing this. Yeah, but that, that makes sense. But that's my creative process. I'd be minding my own business, sitting on my sofa, mm-hmm. reading the Times. I'd see a quote like this, and I would just... I would just take it and use cognitive estrangement, and <laughs> and and take it to the to the wildest end that I could. But now, the newspaper is reporting things that are so atrocious, yeah, and so beyond. Like all I could say is beyond, beyond. I can't think of the words that I can't write this stuff anymore mm-hmm. because I can't. I cannot. I cannot be more unreal than how unreal the reality is. Yeah. How long did it take you to write both of those books? Fast. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say it had to be. I write write very fast. I take my pen and I go, the end story. And nobody edits me. (laughs) So I just, I don't, writing literary theory is much harder because I have to have quotes and sources. And, well, I don't want to, be giving myself too many plaudits but I guess if you're an artist and you know how to do it you could do it like look at all the I don't mean to compare myself to Picasso but look at all the Picassos Picasso did you go to every museum in in Europe and there's a Picasso in there Mm. how did he do it all because he took his paintbrush and he went yeah Picasso (laughs) (laughs) where can our viewers find these books now. You could find When Trump Changed and This Former President on Amazon, 
um, dot com. It's right there. Mm-hmm. And all artists want people want to have an audience. Of course, and I would. I would love it if people would read this. And since things are so dire now, and we don't know if we're going to have a democracy, and people are really scared, like like people, it's 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 horrible. So I think that these books can make people feel better. Mm-hmm. That they. It, they are funny, and they could make people laugh, and it could be a way to get to get through this time. Mm-hmm. Um, like like one of my friends, um, a feminist English professor, who was my best friend when I was a young assistant professor. We grew up together. Um, she wrote me the other day, and she goes, "I think Trump is going to get elected," <gasps> and I'm going, "No," and I, like the way I'm handling it myself. Maybe this is too idealistic, but you have to trust someone sometime. Mm-hmm. Like, like okay, I'm a New Yorker. I don't keep my door open. But <laughs> I've, you have to trust people. I've been in the situation where I had to take a loved one, bring the loved one to the hospital, bring him to the surgery area, kiss him goodbye, and watch him walk through the door. Mm-hmm. And I can... I am a doctor. I am Dr. Barr, but I'm not that kind of doctor. And I can't can't do surgery. And I had to trust that the surgeons would do the best by my loved one. Mm -hmm. And and you you must trust people. And I hope I'm not wrong. And I'm crossing my fingers. My fingers are crossed. Yes. We're all crossing. (laughs) I believe in America. And I have traveled extensively. Um, I, um, I I had three Fulbrights. I lived in wow. German. Well, it was a way to travel, and I loved it. Yeah. Um, I lived in German-speaking um, countries for five years of my life. I was a visiting professor at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. I've lectured all over the world. I've been everywhere. And I feel that America is the best place. Hmm. I went to East Berlin when the wall was up alone on the train through East Germany, clutching my passport as the dogs, the police dogs, sniffed under the train. (laughs) And I was, like, so happy to be an American. And the Fulbright people brought all the Fulbrighters in in the morning so they could see how terrible East Germany was, and they teach their students that. Um, and they said, then we went back to the West to have lunch and they said, okay, let's go back to the East. And I said, I am not going back to the East. The morning was enough and I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not going back in there. And, um, one of the Fulbrighters, a woman friend of mine that I was friends with, we got lost in East Germany and we were hysterical and she, she's a, she's a daughter of Germans and she was crying. And I said, Monica, stop crying. We're lost. Just speak German and get us out of here. Cause <laughs> Because I can't, I can't speak foreign languages. I got my PhD at Buffalo, and if they had a language requirement, which they don't, I'd still be there trying to get my PhD anyway. <laughs> so I do trust America, and I think that America is the best country. And my, um, since I'm a baby boomer, my father fought World War II, and he went to India. And for all of my travels, I have never been to India. Hmm. And he came back from India, and he said. America is the best place. And he never went anywhere ever again. Hmm. And when I was in Germany, I became friends with a, with a German professor in my department who went to Buffalo and was treated very well by my dissertation director. So when I got there, he treated me well. 
And I met his then 13-year-old daughter, who's now 50, who has a 10-year-old son. And whenever she comes to New York, she, she comes and she sees me. And I have known three generations of a German family. And the father said to me that when he was a young child in Dusseldorf, when he was walking over the ruins, American soldiers gave him chocolate bars. <laughs> and he was so happy that the American soldiers gave him chocolate bars because they were all starving. He grew up and became a German professor of American studies hmm. because he was so impressed by the Americans. And when I, um, I was also a visiting professor at the University of Innsbruck, and the landlady gave me free rent for the summer because she said, you are an American, and the Americans were nice to me. Whew. And on that note... That is all the time we have. Okay. Let's I, hope America does the right thing. Well, the last thing I want to say is I trust America, and I think that America will do the right thing. Yeah. And may I be correct, because if I'm not, I don't know what I will do. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Marlene. Dr. Marlene Espar. I'm your host, Christine Stoddard. You have been watching or listening to Badass Lady Folk. Tune in next time. Thank <laughs> you.